0: Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club.
1: Welcome to the Commonwealth Club. I'm George Hammond, chair of the Humanities Forum, which organized tonight's event in association with Convergence. And I'd like to welcome our live audience here in San Francisco and our radio and online audiences. And I'm going to turn over the program to Mark Zitter,
2: who organized the event and is a member of the Commonwealth Club's Board of Directors. Thank you, George. I want to thank George for uh, hosting tonight under the auspices of the Humanities Forum and also for all that George does for the club. So thanks very much. This evening's program focuses on incarceration. And before I make any remarks, I wanted to see how many people here have either a personal or a professional, have had interactions with America's criminal justice system. Gordon, Okay. So for our radio audience, that's most people in the room. So I think I don't have to tell most people here that the system has some substantial problems. I don't have time to enumerate them all. I'll give you some of my uh, quote-unquote favorites. We know we have about 2.3 million Americans in our prisons or jails. Now, the U.S. has less than 5% of the world's population, but claims almost 25% of the incarcerated humans on this planet. Now, we might be proud of that if actually the system were fair and effective, but unfortunately, it's hard to make the case that it's either. We know that people of color make up about 37% of the U.S. population, but about two-thirds of the prison population. We also get the decision to imprison wrong far too often. There's various studies on this. Uh, One of the ones I saw recently was out of the University of Pennsylvania said about 6% of all crimes are actually wrongful convictions. So we're taking away people's freedom when they actually didn't commit the crime that they were accused of. And of course, once people get into prison, we don't do such a great job either, as shown by the high recidivism rates. Most recent statistics I saw say that about 68 percent of released prisoners are rearrested within three years and about 44 percent of released prisoners don't even make it a full year out of prison without being rearrested. So although we call these prisons correctional facilities, it's hard to really seriously say that they're correcting very well. Now, now that you're depressed, fortunately, there is some hope on this topic, and we're going to hear why, partly from tonight's speakers There is a growing movement to ensure that when people leave prison, they're going to have a greater chance of succeeding in the free world. The conversation tonight is between Mark Howard and Stephanie McGenzie, and it will highlight recommendations from the Reentry Ready Project. That's sponsored by the nonprofit Convergence Center for Policy Resolution, which brings together diverse stakeholders to tackle thorny national problems across a variety of topics. This one, of course... Focusing on incarceration. Now, Reentry Ready focuses on the tremendous benefits of education and positive programming for incarcerated people so that they can develop the self worth and critical reasoning skills they will need in the outside world. The program, by the way, also focuses on making jails and prisons safer for both residents and staff. A bit about our our speakers Mark Howard is a national expert on incarceration, he's an author, professor, and founding director of the Prisons and Justice Initiative at Georgetown University. Mark has a very relevant and very compelling personal story, which I'm sure he'll share with us tonight. He teaches accredited college classes in prisons, and he has a particular interest in wrongful imprisonment. I'll also add that Mark is a serious tennis player, having been a practice partner of the tennis legend, Yvonne Lindell. And when Mark visits San Quentin, he has a number of times played with the tennis team there. Stephanie McGenzie, not known for her backhand, but knows an awful lot about prisons and prison reform. She leads Reentry Ready and special projects for Convergence Center for Policy Resolution, where she works with a a wide variety of often uh, competing stakeholders, I guess I'd say, on incarceration and reentry issues. So Mark and Stephanie are going to engage in a spirited and, I think, inspiring dialogue tonight, and they'll leave plenty of time for your questions, so to get them ready. Please help me give a warm Commonwealth Club welcome to Mark Howard and Stephanie McKenzie.
3: Thank you. It's always nice when people clap before you even said anything. <laughs> And uh, showing great faith on your part that we're going to see a whole bunch of things that you'll find interesting. So let me just start by uh, thanking George and Mark for inviting us to be here today. Um, I am super excited to be with you and look forward to the conversation that we're going to have um, this evening. Convergence convened for the Reentry Ready Project about two dozen leaders um, representing diverse sectors, systems, regions, and definitely ideologies about the criminal justice um, challenge that we face here in the United States. They reached consensus on a bold, comprehensive plan to improve reentry outcomes. We met with them for about 18, 19 months, five Nope, six times. We met six times yeah. um, over that time period. And central to this set of recommendations that our stakeholders created is the need for deep collaboration at all levels across multiple overlapping systems like health, education, labor, housing. Basically, every system has a nickel in the reentry quarter. Okay. There isn't a system of services for our country for which an individual who's been involved with this system doesn't need support from. So one of the things that they said is, you know, once we have this deep collaboration, it should focus and home in very specifically on the kinds of needs that they have that the criminal justice system cannot meet on its own. Um, Corrections is woefully unprepared um, to meet the comprehensive set of needs that currently and formerly incarcerated individuals have. So our recommendations in the final report cover things like um, health, mental health, substance abuse, housing, um, employment, Employability. We were real clear on, and we can talk a little bit more about why we said employability, not employment. Um, education and the family and community connections that are needed to be successful, um, when someone returns home. So I'm thrilled to be here talking uh, with one of our amazing stakeholders, Mark um, Howard. You will find him to be uh, creative, thoughtful, just amazing. I've learned so much from him and I won't take too much time because he has very compelling, um, not just stories to tell about the work that he does, um, but about the kinds of outcomes that are possible when you... Um, Focus on the needs of the people and see them in their humanity and not just as, you know, a a cog in this very large um, $80 billion plus incarceration um, will that we invest in um, annually in our country. So I'm going to let you all eavesdrop on a fireside chat uh, that we're going to have. Isn't it lovely that I'm going to let you eavesdrop at your own house? Um, (laughs) And I have lots of papers here, but don't worry. It'll be a really good discussion because Mark has some um, amazing stories and experiences to share. And I'd like to start, Mark, by asking you um, to talk about why this work is so personal for you and how you got started doing this in the first place, because it wasn't where you're Um, Education and career started?
4: Not at all. So let me just say, and a lot of people in this room are familiar with this topic and issue, everybody has a story, Mm -hmm. right? Everyone has a connection that led them to get interested in this area. Mine is a little wacky. This is a second career for me. I started out uh, as a political scientist. I got my PhD across the bay at UC Berkeley in political science. I specialize in European politics. I'm half French, a native speaker of French, uh, fluent in German and Russian. And I wrote several books that all had to do with different elements of European politics. Nothing to do with the United States, nothing to do with criminal justice. But here I am devoting every waking hour and probably many sleeping hours as well, because it's working in my subconscious, to trying to get people out of prison who don't belong there, trying to support people on their journey towards reentry, and trying to change the narrative nationwide about mass incarceration and about people who are incarcerated or have been incarcerated. And what led to this shift is a very deeply personal story. There, before I give that one, let me just give a little preface to it, okay. which is another personal element, which if you get the book, which is on sale there, Unusually Cruel, I open the book with this story, which is that When I was 13 years old, I was arrested in London where I was with my traveling soccer team and ended up spending an afternoon in jail and ended up having a juvenile criminal record in the UK until I turned 18. I say that not to overplay the gravity of what I did, but to show that I don't judge and I understand that young people, particularly young men, boys, do really, really stupid things. And fortunately, that mistake didn't define me. But unfortunately, in this country, and particularly to people of color, it does. So that's one sort of personal story. The main one that led me to completely change my life and work in this area has to do with a childhood friend who I've known since we were three years old. We actually went to preschool together, a place called Lovey Dovey. Believe it or not, you can't make that up. And then throughout... uh, elementary, middle school, high school. But on the first day of our senior year of high school, my friend Marty woke up to find his parents brutally murdered in his own house. And by the end of that day, he was in handcuffs, having supposedly confessed to murdering his parents. And by the next summer, he was sentenced to 50 to life in a maximum security prison in upstate New York. And our lives went in very different directions. And the way we joke about it today, and he likes to say this more than I do, frankly, but he says, Mark went to Yale, Marty went to jail. And we lost touch for about a decade, and I went on and I got my undergraduate degree, got my PhD, I met my wife in Berkeley, actually, and started a family and so on. At some point, I decided I wanted to reach out to Marty. And I should say that at the time, I believed he was innocent, and I actually wrote about it in our high school newspaper called The Purple Parrot, which in retrospect I think deserves a Pulitzer Prize because it's the only newspaper in the state of New York, and this is a very, very heavily publicized case, the only newspaper that actually got the story right, which was that Marty was innocent. And at some point we reconnected. We started writing letters. I have shoeboxes of letters. And then I started visiting him. And we developed this incredibly close friendship as adults And I made a promise to him in the prison visiting room that I would do everything in my power to get him out of prison. Hmm. And I made a decision that was pretty crazy. I was a tenured Georgetown full professor. And I said, I'm going to go to law school to get my friend out of prison. And so at the same time as I was a professor, I became a 1L and I was so exhausted. I would walk into a room and I would say, "Do I go up and start speaking, or do I go sit in the back and hope I don't get called on?" <laughs> and this went on for a number of years. But Marty was exonerated. He was released. He'd served almost 18 years in prison. And uh, it's there's a, a happy clap for
3: that. Yeah. Yeah.
4: <laughs> and there's a happy oh, sure. There's a, there's a happy ending, uh, although nothing can, of course, make up for those 18 years, which is that Marty went on to get his bachelor's degree to go to law school. He recently passed the New York bar exam, and he's on his way to being admitted as an attorney in New York. And I continued with law school. Many people said, oh, Marty's out. You should just stop and go back to your old life and go write another book on Europe or whatever you do. Um, <laughs> and to me, there was just no going back. My eyes had been open to injustice, and I couldn't close them again. And so I kept going. Um, I started teaching about prisons and the criminal justice system. I started going into prisons. I started volunteering. I started teaching. Um, I had an amazing visit to San Quentin where I played tennis, as Mark mentioned. I'm actually going there again on Saturday if the weather works out. I'm hopeful. Um, but um, it opened my eyes to so much of the injustice that I'd never really um, been exposed to. And so while I have a part of my work that deals with wrongful convictions, and I should say Marty has now come back to Our friendship has reached a point where we actually are colleagues. He co-teaches a course with me at Georgetown where he comes down from New York every Friday in the spring semester. And our students work on actual wrongful conviction cases where the goal is to accomplish exactly what we have, which is Marty sitting next to me. So you're pretending to be Marty here. And it, it inspires the students in a way you couldn't believe. And they work on these cases and they reinvestigate. And they put everything into it and they create documentaries because I was tired of reading papers that students didn't, didn't want to write and I didn't want to read. And now they make documentaries that are incredibly powerful. And one of them was so outstanding that it led to an exoneration of Valentino Dixon who had served 27 years in Attica, who thanks to new discoveries made by our students in our class, left prison a free man and reclaimed his life. So... Uh, Work on wrongful convictions is where I started through my friend Marty, and it's important to what I do, but I've really moved on in a sense because the problem with the wrongful convictions movement, and I say this as someone who's partly a part of it, is that it implies that other people who did commit their crimes deserve what they get, and they absolutely don't because our prisons are a horror show of injustice, of lack of dignity, and Much of what I do now involves working to change that very system and working with people who did make mistakes, sometimes even grave mistakes, but who are capable of so much more. And I'll get into that in a little bit.
3: Well, actually, Mark, you just touched on something. When we started this dialogue, and I mentioned that we have had people from very diverse perspectives, some who were very much of the lock them up, throw away the key to, you know, no mandatory minimums and pretty much every group in between. And several formerly incarcerated individuals were a part of our stakeholder table to ground the whole discussion in truth. You know, what happens in reality is often a very different shade of gray from what, you know, policies and regulations say. But one of the things that we agreed on before we even started talking about possible solutions was a set of principles that would guide the discussion. And one of the first, the first principle was around acknowledging the humanity of the individuals who were involved. Um, in the criminal justice system and their agency, their ability to be involved and not just involved, but to direct the solutions and the resources that would be most appropriate for their lives. But not everyone, you know, fully understands that. And I'm talking about people who do this work um, deeply. Uh, my mother was a correctional officer at San Quentin for 20 plus years. I grew up in halfway houses and, you know, I went to work with her because she was a single mom. So my view of of who, who the folks are that we serve was very grounded in the fact that this was a job that my mother had. She was helping people and I was happy to be a part of helping other people. But not everybody sort of comes at it with that lens. Tell the group a little bit more about what you're doing now to help to shine a really bright light on what's actually happening inside the system and how they can become a part of the solution.
4: Yeah, well, I should say, take- Convergence did an outstanding job in this project. In bringing I paid together for that, people. by the way. <laughs> it's true. Um, bringing together people who really are across the ideological spectrum, who probably don't agree on many issues. Mm-hmm. But there was a set of principles that was brought forward that everyone bought into and, and I think genuinely believed. And I'll admit I was skeptical at first. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, at the very first dinner, I sat down to, next to two people from Core Civic, one of the private prison companies. And I thought, I don't know how I'm going to make it through this meal. Um, And I came away, even in that situation, Mm -hmm. convinced of at least these individuals. I think I still have some issues with the companies and perhaps the shareholders and goals. But with their commitment to this project and their commitment to humanizing people, to understanding where they come from and to trying to trying to reach solutions that would decrease the number of people in prison and improve the conditions they're in. And it was an extraordinary process, and it was one that needed repeat meetings to get to know, you know, there's this sort of skepticism, and you can be friendly at first, but the second time, that initial barrier is gone, and by the end, um, you really came to respect the other person, and the suspicion went away. And it's a remarkable process, and I know there are probably people here who are skeptical just like I was at first, Um, but... I think there's a genuine commitment and I think this issue in particular we've seen it on a national level we have a level of bipartisanship on criminal justice reform that while not you know perfect and seamless but it is real it is genuine and it's rare it doesn't exist in other sectors and so people came together and I think changed and listened and believed each other and their integrity and their commitment. And it was a beautiful process to behold. And so I grew very much from this. I gained respect for um, others that I might have shut out beforehand, and I think they did uh, with me as well. Um, in terms of the work um, that I do and the perspective that I bring, um, and I say this looking at Jody Lewin, who's really, the, the you might say, the founding mother, uh, one of them certainly in the field of prison education that I've so much Just deep respect for having paved the way, um, and I really want to pay tribute. But what? Not but. Thanks to Jody and thanks to some of the other pioneers, I've embarked on a journey um, that has prison education at its core. And I did it initially by accident. I was teaching a course at Georgetown, Prisons and Punishment, and I would take students on a prison visit, but it was very artificial. It was very, the warden would say, do not make eye contact with the inmates, you know, something very dehumanizing. And I would do that. And I would talk to people and I would try, but it was always limited. And then I decided, you know, I need to talk to people more. I want to go inside and genuinely connect with people. And so I volunteered to teach a course in a nonprofit that was teaching, uh, had, had a number of courses in a prison in Maryland, and it absolutely blew me away. And I have so much reshifted all of the teaching that I do, whether it's at Georgetown, whether it's in prison. We started a program, the Prison Scholars Program. We started with non-credit courses at first in January 2018. By September, we were offering credit-bearing courses in the DCGL, where we have a tremendous partnership with the Department of Corrections. And we just... Well, I don't know if I can publicly say it, but we are on the verge of receiving a major grant that is going to allow us to offer bachelor's degrees, Georgetown bachelor's degrees to incarcerated residents in the D.C. jail in Maryland. And um, it is um, incredibly uh, inspiring. I tell people sometimes if I had to choose and and. I would hate to have this choice, but if I could only teach Georgetown students on this beautiful campus on the hilltop, as it's called, or only teach incarcerated students, I would choose incarcerated students without any hesitation. I get more inspiration, Mm -hmm. more education. Myself, I learn so much and simply respect for the character of the men and women, and I should say women too, because our program is the only co-educational prison education program in the country. We're allowed to have women in our classes alongside men, which is extraordinary. It is so uh, rewarding that um, what I've tried to do now is to bring other people in to witness this, to experience it. We have the great fortune of being able to bring in guest speakers So I've been running now a lecture series for close to five years where every week I bring in a different guest speaker. Some of them are academics. Some are prominent Mm -hmm. uh, business leaders. One of them this summer was Kim Kardashian filming a documentary that is going to focus on our program and on prison education in general bringing it to a wider audience, every single person. And we're talking hundreds. And now I've also brought in thousands of students. They walk out and they say, this was a life-changing experience. And they say, this was the best audience that I've ever spoken to. Can I come back? So we have what we call repeat defenders, people who keep coming back in. They want to teach. Mm -hmm. Um, I'd like to, if we could show a short clip that gives you a sense. I'd love to be able to bring you inside to see our program and those who come to Washington, please follow up with me and you can come see our program in action. But the next best thing, since we're here in San Francisco, is to show this three-minute clip about our program. And you can see some of our amazing incarcerated students here.
5: Education
2: has changed the trajectory of my life.
3: It has given me a reason to
5: breathe. It has given me purpose as a human being.
4: In January 2018, the Prisons and Justice Initiative launched a pilot education program at the DC jail. We offered a variety of non-credit courses in the spring 2018 and summer 2018 semesters. In September 2018, thanks to two generous donors, we added two credit-bearing courses per semester. We also have the only co-educational prison education program in the country. This celebration marks the end of a great semester with both credit and non-credit classes as we honor the power of education to transform people's lives, families, and communities. At one point,
5: I I always thought that I didn't really have a voice. A structure formed itself around my life that I couldn't shape, and it wound me here in prison. A life of crime is, is something that a lot of people do when they're ignorant to survive. I entered this jail when I was 16 years old. A self-destructive, traumatized child who I could barely read and write. I returned 26 years later. It's George scholar. become educated and you have the know-how, you have the tools to succeed, a life of crime isn't even an option anymore, you know, you see better ways, You you have more opportunities open up to you. My goal is to be a doctor in sociology and to be a professor. I wrote this poem for this event and it's called You Ask Me. You ask me what I've learned in democracy. I've learned that the greatest hypocrisy is that democracy isn't something that we should fight wars and kill for, because democracy is something that we should all strive to live for. Prison is not rehabilitative. Education is. Education is the very element that rehabilitates us.
4: Each semester, we're offering two credit-bearing courses along with six to eight non-credit courses. And the response has been overwhelmingly positive. So we want to go further. Our goal is to expand our course offerings, enroll more students in our program, and create a vibrant educational community and culture of the D.C. jail. It'll take more outside support to achieve our goal, but I can say that our students are working extremely hard, making incredible progress, and they're truly performing at the college level. Thank you. Thank you.
5: Thank you for your support.
4: For more information and to support the Scholars Program, please visit (laughs) prisonsandjustice.georgetown.edu.
3: Mark, one of the things that I think a lot of people don't fully understand is just how little, um, education and supportive services, career and technical education is offered inside correctional facilities. I remember speaking uh, with someone about this work saying, well, you know, um, uh, prisoners can go to law school and they can do this. They can do things, you know, that young people on the outside, um, can't do, and they have all sorts of great resources and supports, um, I know firsthand that that's not the case. I've seen, I've been to D.C. jail and, and what Mark said about the individuals that are there. The hunger for learning is palpable. How do we get, how do we d- demystify what is actually happening behind jail and prison walls and and encourage greater investment in education and employability services for the thousands, the hundreds of thousands of people that are going to be released every year without the skills that they need to um, not end up back where they came from. Yeah.
4: Yeah. Now the vast majority of prisons have no programming, Mm -hmm. no training, no opportunities. It's simply idle time fraught with always the threat of danger and it is often creating the very thing that we want to eliminate. And then we act surprised and blame those very people if they get back into trouble. And by the way, I do want to make one little correction to the 68% statistic, which is that it's not necessarily rearrest for new crimes. The vast majority of people who go s- get sent back to prison is for technical parole violations, mm-hmm. which can be as simple as missing an appointment with a parole officer, making an illegal U-turn, getting married without permission of the parole officer. I know someone that, ha- that happened to mm-hmm. who said, on a Monday, guess what, I got married, I'm so happy, and the parole officer said, you're going back to jail? Um, so there's an inhumanity at every stage of the system. But in terms of what we should do, The recipe is right in front of us, which is we need to turn prison into productive time so that people can learn and grow. So many of the people that I've come into contact with say that, particularly those who've been in for decades, that they've never had any opportunity. They've never had someone treat them with respect. They've never had someone ask them what they think or to have a discussion about something, much less a book, let's say. And the benefits of this type of work are so clear. It costs so little, but it's extraordinary. One, you're changing people's lives. You're changing their families' lives. We have stories. The director of the DOC, after we started a pilot program very tentatively, within three weeks, told me there's a culture change in the D.C. jail. He said, I walk into units and people are having debates about philosophy. Can you have utopia within a capitalist system that has winners and losers? That's a really... (laughs) Heavy question. And he comes and overhears this debate. Someone else talking on the phone saying, mom, I got into a Georgetown class. Can you believe it? Someone else talking to a child saying, you know, I've been studying hard. How about you? Think about all the ripple effects in all directions. Then there's the cost element, which appeals more to some people, but they're real. Uh, when you 're sending people to prison when it costs anywhere from thirty to sixty thousand depending on the location per year, for idle time where they 're doing nothing, you can be saving tremendous costs and then victims of crime, of course, if you have people who are productive who are on the right path they're not going to go back to a life of crime, like Mustafa said in the video. Um, One of the other programs that we run at Georgetown that's really connected to reentry that I'm really proud of is the Pivot Program, which we founded about a year ago, which I co-direct with the vice dean of the business school at Georgetown. And I have to say I've been there for uh, over 16 years. In the first 14, I had absolutely nothing to do with the business school whatsoever. And all of a sudden, I discovered not only a colleague, but A whole community there of colleagues who Mm -hmm. decided to make the commitment to support a reentry program for formerly incarcerated people to acquire an education. It's a year-long certificate program in business and entrepreneurship where they have part-time education year-round, half of the week, and the other half internships where they acquire jobs and some of them become entrepreneurs and start their own businesses. This is something that I want every university in every city to do. We have a great partnership with DC. We had a federal grant that helped to launch the program, but we're really committed to helping people while they're incarcerated and then helping support them as they come home. Because ultimately we need to change the script. We need to turn the story of overcoming a period of incarceration into one of triumph, one of somebody who Okay, made mistakes, paid their debt, which is supposed to end, but rarely does, and then overcame it. That's a story of overcoming, of triumph, of survival. That's an inspiring story, and we need to get the country to appreciate these stories of success and to support them, rather than to demonize people and to keep making them go back to that one stupid mistake that they made that landed them in those circumstances. (laughs)
3: Uh, comment that you just made about, um, you know, folks are greater than, you know, the worst thing that they've ever done. One of the hardest or actually multiple times over the course of our dialogue, we had some pretty contentious discussions around who is actually incarcerated, who's, you know, caught up in um, this very unvirtuous cycle of incarceration and reentry. And very specifically talking about race and um equity uh gender issues because the system was not built with women in mind and it's more than just not having access to feminine hygiene products um it is just horrible 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 for all involved but for for women with their unique needs but in the conversations mark when we were talking about the race and equity issues how would you what advice would you give To um, anyone who is thinking about being an advocate for um, someone who is involved in this system, and especially in relationship to um, returning to communities that are so poorly resourced um, that they don't even the communities don't have what they need, never mind the additional services and and incentives that could be available to organizations serving formerly incarcerated folks.
4: Yeah, I mean, that was a really uh, fruitful discussion, but a difficult one. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think the first step is acknowledging the obvious, which is that there are racial disparities at every single stage of the criminal justice system that are not a fluke, that can only be explained by racism on the part of the actors in that system. So whether it's the disproportionate policing, whether it's who gets charged, who gets convicted— how long they get sentenced for, conditions within prison, who gets sent to solitary confinement, who gets recommended for parole, and then support system upon release. Mm -hmm. There are overwhelming racial disparities, and that needs to be stated. When I teach my prisons and punishment course at Georgetown, which has a big following, it has the longest waiting list of any course at Georgetown, and the students are really galvanized on this issue, I tell them the first five sessions in a twice a week course are going to be on race and it's going to make you uncomfortable, but we have to go there because it's the elephant in the room and you can't talk productively about criminal justice. If you don't talk about race, that said, once you acknowledge that once you work on it, we need to work on larger solutions that involve humanizing everybody and bringing those disparities to bear, bringing in people who have been affected by the criminal justice system. And I have, all kinds of guest speakers that I'm bringing in, formerly incarcerated speakers, um, most of which are people of color. And we need to engage with what they have experienced, what they are dealing with, and to support them on a human level. Ultimately, I think the solution, if there is one, because the obstacles are so tremendous, but it's about proximity. It's about looking people in the eye, talking, shaking hands, hugging, embracing them, And it's about humanizing people, Mm -hmm. because once you take that step, once you embrace someone, once you see their humanity, once you show your love, and it really is about love. Once you show that you can't go back, you can't go back to watching Law and Order. In fact, I tell my students on the very first day, I say, if you're a Law and Order fan and you love that show and you want to keep loving that show, leave right now. (laughs) There are other students who would love to take your place because if you take my class, you will never be able to appreciate Law and Order again and the many shows like it. They've caused so much damage. Overcoming that is about proximity and humanity. And I think we have the ingredients for it. And one of the projects that I'm now working on, in addition to what I'm doing within Georgetown, which is a lot, but it's limited to one university and a university in a particular location, is that I want to scale the work that I've been doing and I want it to spread. I want to bring in having brought in hundreds of guest speakers, thousands of students and having all of them tell me this is a life changing experience. I want it to go beyond Georgetown and Washington. And so I've created and I'm in the process of launching a new nonprofit organization, the Frederick Douglass project for justice. And the main flagship project is to bring in thousands and ultimately tens of thousands of people, nationwide starting the pilot program in five states in particular prisons and having people visit sit down with talk with people and discuss their lives and connect with them on a human level and there are a lot of details that i won't get into with this but i know that when those people walk out and when they go communicate with their family members their friends their social networks it will break down this barrier that society builds up about good and evil. And people over there are evil and belong where they are. Because once you see that, and the video helps, but ultimately you need to be there. And once you're there, it changes you. And you can't go back to viewing people as monsters. And ultimately, we need to bring this proximity and humanity nationwide. And so that's what I'm devoting this new organization to and that what I devote you know, every day of my existence to going forward.
3: Because we are our brothers and sisters keepers. So let's open it up for questions.
1: Just a little background for you know, the last 10 programs we did in this area over the last 10 years or so. One of the patterns that we, we, we get from different uh, angles on it is that there was slavery and then there was, you know, emancipation then there was segregation, and then there was integration, and then there was mass incarceration. Mm-hmm. And it's all part of the same history of how to deal with the same problem, and, and we really are f- totally failing you know, at, 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 uh, at dealing with this. Anyway, uh, one of the last speakers like that was Chris Wilson. Uh, I don't know if you know Chris yeah, Wilson, don't the know master the well. plan. Yeah. Uh, he came and gave a great talk here last February. You can, anybody who wants to hear it, it's on our podcast. Thank you so much for what you're doing. Uh, as I
2: told you, my brother just spent eight yeah. and a half years in a South Carolina prison. Uh, his warden, who was an avowed redneck, had this idea that education could make a difference. So he set up character dorms mm. at different levels, and his recidivism rate is under 15%. Yeah. How do we get someone like that help? How do we get them into the system? This is all voluntary. The state fights him because why would you spend money on these guys? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and and my second question was, how are you tied in politically? Do you have congressmen or senators who are supporting you?
4: Yeah. Um, The evidence in terms of the research is very clear. People who acquire an education when they're in prison will not go back to a life of crime. Uh, The RAND Corporation did a major meta-study of hundreds of other studies, finding that even as little as one higher education course will reduce recidivism by 43%. Um, The Bard Prison Initiative, which has been around for 20 years and has been granting bachelor's degrees, over 500 bachelor's degrees from incarcerated residents, one of whom is now employed by Georgetown as the program manager for the Pivot program, I should say, uh, George Chochos, their recidivism rate is under 2%, zero violent crimes. It's extraordinary. It's simple. It's clear. We need to do it. We need to support it. Unfortunately, the states will not do it. Um, it They will not take from the state budget to fund positive programming. Fortunately, philanthropy and other organizations with resources have taken the initiative, and perhaps Pell Grants may be coming back and are coming back in limited means in terms of these experimental second-chance sites. So I think we're picking up the slack I wish states would do it. I think, frankly, it's a no-brainer. It would actually, from from those very budgets, you know, just different pockets, it would save them tremendously if they did it. But unfortunately, and this is what we discussed a lot during Convergence, there were these silos and they just think, this is my budget and I just want to protect it. Mm-hmm. But we need to be encouraging this. And I think the way to do it is by spreading positive stories about the success of prison education. And again, Jody's been doing this for a long time. Um, prison University Project is a leader and... San Quentin is a special place because of all the programming that's offered. And I know many people from the times I've been there who say they could qualify for lower security prisons. They could have you know, better cells and better living conditions, but they're there for the programming. The same with Sing Sing in the New York area. Same with the D.C. Jail. Same with certain places, usually that are closer to cities, that have volunteers who are willing to come in and contribute their own time and resources. But we need to be encouraging this, to be supporting it, and to make it the norm. Every single prison should have positive programming available to everyone who wants to participate. And what will happen is that it will make others want to do it. And, okay, you need a GED to get into this program that everyone wants to be in. Well, then I'm going to get my GED. There are all these positive ripple effects, including not getting into fights, including – making it a safer environment for correctional staff, which is really important um, and should be part of the goal. But unfortunately, they haven't all seen the light on this, but I think that there's some um, movement in the right direction now, and I'm glad to be contributing to that.
3: And I'd just like to add that in our report, the Reentry Ready Report there's so much grist for the mill. Um, and you all quite frankly are part of the solution. Um, things don't happen because we as, um, taxpayers and as individuals are not necessarily demanding it. We know what to do. Um, we have resources that are available to us. We're spending the money anyway. Can I say that a hundred times? We're spending it anyway. Why not spend it on programming that's actually useful? Really super quick story. One of the formerly incarcerated women that advised us um, over the course of the project um, had a teaching credential For the crime that she committed, didn't have anything to do with students or teaching, but lost her teaching credential, wasn't able to do that when she was released. So she went in with a plan. She was going to serve five years. She looked at the courses that they offered and said, I'm going to do all of this so that when I get out, I'll be a certified electrician. This, I mean, she had it all planned out for how she was going to make the best use of her time. She gets behind the prison walls and none of the courses are available. There are years, years and years and years long waiting lists for those courses. So what classes did she take the five years she was incarcerated? Knitting and crocheting. So she had a plan on how she was going to make the best use of the time and what she knows how to do now has no possibility of all, at all of helping her to earn a living um, now that she has been released. So same money, just not used in the kinds of ways that Mark is describing and that are contained in the report.
5: All right. Will Dunn for the System Principal Civic Center Secondary School is an alternative school for students grades 7 through 12. So thank you for the work that you do. Um, I have a question regarding uh, when you look at the data of wrongfully imprisoned folks and eventually uh, exonerated folks, I'm wondering if there are any trends that emerge that would raise red flags to say, well, this, it's possible. I mean, before they actually are in prison, it's possible. Or it's highly likely that this person is going to be wrongfully imprisoned. Is there um, any work done, or is there a capacity, or do you know if there's any work that's being done that could prevent those folks from being incarcerated in the first place?
4: Yeah. Um, I don't want to indict a whole profession, mm-hmm. and I want to say that I know many people who are in this line of work whom I respect, but the common theme... Throughout wrongful convictions, and this is I say this knowing hundreds of people who have been wrongfully convicted and caring about them, is prosecutors who fixate on one person who have tunnel vision and who refuse to let go no matter what. Because this, whatever the circumstances are, and it's often eyewitness misidentification or false confessions, which is the case in Marty's circumstances, or junk science— or faulty ballistics and so on. You have someone in charge of that investigation. It can be police or prosecutors, but often working in tandem, who have moments where they saw that something was wrong. Valentino Dixon's case, the person we helped exonerate, who spent 27 years in prison, two days after he was arrested, someone else came forward and confessed to having committed that crime. And they told him, go away, we have our person. And they threatened to charge him with perjury, which is somehow (laughs) scarier than murder. I don't know. But um, and basically told him, we don't want you to talk. We're focusing on Valentino Dixon. He five times over the next 27 years. And he ended up going to prison for another serious crime. He confessed over and over to the media he said Valentino Dixon didn't commit this crime and they wouldn't listen to him. So I mentioned that example because it's so extreme. Mm-hmm. Think about other circumstances where maybe they have an idea, they just don't want to look too hard. And then you have cases where, you know, the prosecutor dies at some point and someone's cleaning out the files and they find things that actually they had evidence that they were supposed to turn over to the defense and never did. So, again, there are many very ethical prosecutors. It's a difficult job. I don't want to... Um, Malign everyone who works in that area. But the common theme, since you asked the question that runs through wrongful convictions, is that prosecutors were fixated on winning. And that's what we have in this adversarial model. You win or you lose. And winning means a conviction. And the truth often is the loser in that. And that's really sad. It's tragic. It's wrong. It, it, it affronts, I mean, to the core. It makes me so upset when I think of the the tens of thousands of years lost by people when they should have known. I know someone, Jeff Deskovic, who's become a friend who spent 16 years in prison. They had DNA at the time. It was more primitive, and it did not match him. Yet he had falsely confessed after 23 hours of, he was 16 years old, of brutal police interrogation, manipulations, threats. There's this whole technique for Uh, coercing false confessions and the jury had the choice here's the dna science it's not him or the prosecutor pushing the story of the false confession saying he had details that only the true killer could have known well that's because they were fed to him by the cops who put it into his confession and 16 years later when that dna was retested and they tried to stop his retesting at every twist and turn they were calling him a cold-blooded murderer and rapist and All the worst things. He was subjected to horrible conditions in prison, as you can imagine. He finally got that DNA retested and went into the national database, and it turned out to match someone else who had raped and killed two other women. And in my mind, that is on those prosecutors, those other crimes, because they actually knew, yet they wanted their conviction. And that's just fundamentally wrong.
0: Hi. I am currently doing research that looks at the um, intersection of health and incarceration. And what I'm finding is there is a lot of coercion and manipulation on the part of the guards in withholding health um, care. And it almost seems too easy the way that you're coming in here with these courses, because in my mind, I'm very skeptical of... um, The way prisons are run. And so I'm wondering how you have what looks seamlessly come in with these programs, because I could imagine a world in which guards would withhold somebody attending class. Or if you don't do a you don't get to do this. And so I'm wondering how you've gotten around that.
4: Yeah, I mean. It is not easy. Let me just be clear. Uh, We face a lot of challenges. We have students who sometimes, well, we definitely have problems with escorting and everyone getting there on time when they're supposed to, and some who drag their feet. Uh, We work hard to try to work positively with the administration in order to avoid that. Uh, We sometimes lose students who have a disciplinary violation that we'll never get to know about, understand, we'll never get to advocate for them and get them back if, if something comes up. And that can be something you know really, really um, basic that 's not a violent crime or something that should be disqualifying, um, but um, you know what you said in terms of health, I just want to mention for those who may not know uh, there 's an irony which is that in this country where there are big battles about universal health care, um, the only population in the country that has a constitutional right to universal health care is incarcerated people, <laughs> but, they- but it is the worst. Health care you could ever want. And the story I get over and over is you know, if someone puts in a slip, three or four days later, they might get, you know, called. And then if it's a cut, they get tracin. If it hurts, they get ibuprofen. And it's just one of those two things. There's no meaningful health care. It's horrific. Um, but in terms of the educational programming, I do think not everywhere, but many correctional administrators actually see the positive benefits of it and it doesn't cost them anything right it's all provided from the outside and they realize that not everyone but many of them realize that this is something that actually will play well it will lower the temperature so to speak in their facility and it will lead to outcomes that they can actually claim and be proud of even if they're not Paying for them or directly supporting them, and and so fortunately, I think that um, is increasing, and I think more administrators are realizing that this is a win for them at very little cost.
3: One of the things that we highlight in the report, and which is different from some other discussions about what could be done to reform the system, is the need to identify the incentives to get the actors that are working in various spaces and places to behave differently. And a part of it is in what kinds of things they are they are held accountable to do and where they achieve some benefit by doing their jobs in a certain way. So right now, prosecutors are reelected largely um, based on their conviction rate, how successful they are in prosecuting crime that leads to someone being incarcerated. What if the incentive were different? What if the incentive was not just prosecution that led to incarceration, but the diversion of people that may have committed a crime but don't necessarily belong behind bars? What if it was the, the, absolute correct prosecution of the individual that committed the crime, likewise with health care being delivered um, inside correctional facilities. Uh, My very first job out of undergraduate school was in the juvenile detention facility in Alameda County. My job was to be the liaison between the custody staff and the health team. What if there was somebody like that? In every correctional facility so that I could say this thing, you know, you might be able to, to use it perhaps as a way to, to facilitate a different kind of behavior from this individual. But delaying health care in this situation leads to all these other things and you don't want that. But back to re- the incentives, the number of people that are incarcerated that have met health care needs. There are multiple research studies that show that the health status of individuals decline when they are incarcerated. It's even worse for juveniles. So what if the incentive were health status improving um, instead of declining? So it's all about what we, again, demand from the systems that we are paying lots of money to support and how we can start to think not out, not um, outside the box, but on top of the box with a full 360 View of how services and supports are being delivered.
0: Can I just ask, though? How do those incentives get put in place? Because it sounds really good. No, it's. But again, I'm very skeptical. It's such a slow-moving shift. Like, how do you just change those incentives?
3: And it's going to take multiple people working across multiple systems for a number of years. We didn't get here overnight. Um, And I share your frustration because, you know, there's the speed of change. Right. When we started our dialogue process, we asked the very first question. I don't know if you remember is how change happens in the criminal justice system. Do you know what the answer was? The answer was litigation. And from that point, the group said, well, wait a minute, we can't sue our way you no. know, out of all of this. There have to be other things that we can do, and that's what led to the full set of recommendations. I'd love to talk to you a little bit afterwards because I have some very specific things that I think would be helpful as it relates to healthcare. care.
5: Uh, hello, my name is Dana Stevenson, and uh, I just want everybody to know that um, everything that you was said in here, I, can, I have a – This side of the line perspective. I've uh, served 25 years of my life in prison and I had to earn my way out. And so it took me 15. I was in for 25, but it took me 15 years to prepare to come home. So inmates, we need to want to do this. We need to want to change. I have a question. There's a question in here. So there's so many things. Healthcare, care. In my perspective, I think the declining health is because of the food. It's all processed food. They took the weights away. They don't want us to work out. They don't want us to be healthy. It's a lot of things that are involved and everybody should be involved. Another thing is to make changes, to pull the inmates, to make sure that they know that we can come in if you want us. If they decide that they don't want you, the, the powers that be are not going to let you in because they don't want to do anything so they won't let you in so you have to poll the inmates you have to poll us and ask us if that's what we want another thing is and that's what we want you can see it right there we need education we hunger for it because it's something that was left out of the inner cities and we were running around with no structure so today uh, i just want everybody to know that structure is what we need and it starts with education and so i was lucky enough to learn how to change. And it took me, tw- it took me fi- uh, uh, 15 years of my 25 years of incarceration to do that. I had to undo everything that was embedded in me. Mm-hmm. It took, uh, in 12 years, it took me 15 years to undo. They weren't going to let me out until I was able to express myself. And through um, some college, uh, I've had classes. Uh, I've uh, attended a Defy Ventures program mm-hmm. who taught me how to speak Mm-hmm. and and just be open and honest with myself. I'm no longer afraid to express who I am. So uh, the inmate, we have to change. We have to change inside in order for this. What you're doing is very, very good. I would have loved to go to Georgetown. That's a bragging right right there. <laughs> uh, Georgetown. <laughs> <laughs> so I just want you to know that there are people that want to change, in, especially in the California prisons, like you spoke of uh, San Quentin. Mm-hmm. Many many programs that are happening, and that are that are prosperous in there, the the change in attitude and the the, the system change, where it was always fighting, always fussing, always uh, cussing out the, the 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 prison guards and the medical staff. There's so many things that can be changed. There's so many elements. There's so many moving parts in what you're doing is that we all need to come together with ideas. And we all need to have uh, some form of dialogue, not just between you and the high powers that be, but between you and the inmates alike, because there are so many ideas with us mm-hmm. that people overlook because we're prisoners. But we have very good ideas on how to change us. We need help. So uh, my question is, if you teach somebody and they become a sociologist, like the young man wanted to say, he wanted his degree. uh, That's something that I wanted to do. And I was in a community college doing it. I want to pick it up when I come out. I just I'm just working really hard trying to get a solid foundation so I can allow those things back into my life. Uh, Education is the main thing. What, uh, incentive, what uh, guarantee that when we do get a, a degree while inside, that we can have some assistance to uh, grab it, you know, to use that and to get a, uh, employment when we come home and to be able to take care of us. Because it does not only take care of us and change our life, it does change our family's lives too. So that's something that we need. And there's people not afraid to ask for help. And there's people that are willing to change if we can have somebody to hey, I'll help you. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you for sharing
4: your incredible story and congratulations on your journey. Um, You're a phenomenal spokesperson for this cause and for everything I believe in. And one of the things I say all the time is that, and I say this as someone who is a professor at an elite institution where many of the students think really highly of themselves, and I say education and intelligence are two different things. They tend to think they're the same thing. Oh, I'm so smart. I'm at Georgetown. There are a lot of people in Georgetown who aren't so smart. And some of the smartest students I've ever had are incarcerated and dropped out of school in the eighth grade. And so think about that. And I tell them that. And that shakes them a little bit. And then I bring them in to my classroom, formerly incarcerated people. I have someone speak live by phone from prison, and that blows them away. And we need to really rethink these concepts and see the potential in everybody. And I see it every time. And when I go into prison, I say, I don't see that orange jumpsuit in D.C. It's orange in Maryland. It's blue. I know California it's light blue. I don't see that. I see someone in a business suit or in a Georgetown sweatshirt um, And the wonderful thing about our partnership with the D.C. Jail and the specific issue of juvenile lifers who are now getting a second chance and getting hearings, and I'm testifying in a lot of hearings in front of judges about these people I care so much about, is they're getting released and they're doing amazing things. And then they go, two of those three who were featured are now home, and they're phenomenal. I do speaking events with them. I bring them to my students. They're excelling on their own, and I'm just so proud of them because— I believed in them when they were in, and I believe in them now. And we need to recognize and support that potential. But it's hard. It's hard coming home. It's hard having that record. And that's why we started the Pivot Program. We also have a paralegal program for formerly incarcerated jailhouse lawyers I didn't have time to get into. But there need to be greater support mechanisms for people when they come home. We can do a lot of the work inside, but we need to continue the work outside. And I think you're the embodiment of that journey.
3: Yeah. And tactically, we need to incentivize employers, you know, That's to right. hire formerly incarcerated individuals. You know, we need to provide job training for the careers and jobs that actually exist in the communities where people are being returned to. There are real things, real tangible things um, that we can do that are I keep it's shameless plug that are contained in the report um, that uh, people like you can help us. Uh, to quite frankly, and when I, th- when, I'm, when I say people like you, people who have the lived experience that can give even more credence to the words that are on that paper that came from you know this group of people that met um, that didn 't really you know have the life experience in the same way that you have, partner with us and help me.
6: So good evening. My name is uh, Miguel Bustos, and I'm the senior director for the Center for Social Justice at GLIDE here in San Francisco. And Wes Aver is our director, uh, manager of uh, public policy. Um, I loved what you said, and I think we, we share this at GLIDE. We believe in unconditional love. Yeah. Uh, we believe in radical inclusivity. And the best part uh, that I feel when I go to work is when we talk to our clients uh, who are waiting in line for food. Many just got out of prison. Glide is one of the few places they know to go to, Um, and, you know, they're just talking to you, and Glide teaches us that, you know, all the things that society says on how a person should look, what they wear, how they smell, at Glide we say take that all away, because you meet people Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. face-to-face. Forty percent of our staff are actually former clients, formerly incarcerated folks. And it's been amazing to see how folks who didn't have um, the sense belief get it and do something beautiful with it. Um, We do work in San Quentin. Um, We go there before folks are released to try to help them out. Uh, Wes is actually working on a criminal justice reform policy agenda. And we would love to get everybody here to be part of that because it's going to take all of us to fight Um, There's a lot of injustice, as we all know. And instead of suing our way, you know what we're going to do? We're going to change the laws. We're going to change the hearts and minds of people, and we're going to change the policies and laws. So we would love to work with you, uh, work with anybody here uh, to do that. But thank you for mentioning love. Mm -hmm. Some people think we're crazy because we talk about it, but it's genuine. It is. And the folks that come to Glide know it and feel it. And so we appreciate it.
4: Yeah. Thank Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for your work.
0: Thanks. My name is Becca Carter. I work with an organization called Bonafide that works on the reentry side of things, um, helping people in that journey of recovery after incarceration. And um, I know one thing that comes up both when we're looking for funding, but also just in general talking with people are metrics. Um, You mentioned recidivism as I think a metric that a lot of people uh, key in on because it's obviously a very bad thing for somebody to go back. But as someone who works with people during that journey, it feels like just a failure metric. And I would love to capture more or in metrics about the success stories that people have talked about. So I'm wondering if in your conversations or in your in your report or any of that, you came up with metrics other than recidivism that talk more about measuring people as they succeed after incarceration or how much they do rather than just when they fail.
3: Yes. Look, I couldn't have paid for more. Uh, <laughs> a, a shameless plug in that. There is a whole section in the report that talks about metrics. And it's everything from... Um, the number of classes, you know, that an individual takes, um, renewed or restored relationships. It is compliance with their own person, the plan that they developed, you know, for themselves. It is, um, the, the amount of time it takes them to find a job, to find a place to live. And all of that is designed to really create a a very detailed picture of what the reentry process is like so that we can start to hold systems accountable for shortening the amount of time it takes for someone to find a job, find a place to live. Um, the um, removing the, the incentives you know, for a parole officer to remand someone back into custody, right? So how many times someone is sent back for a technical violation, things like that. So the more of those things that we can actually count And that we are counting on a pretty consistent basis, um, and across multiple, um, systems. That was the other key thing that was a part of the report. That the education outcomes don't just belong to the correctional facilities. Those educational outcomes belong to the education system that's coming in to provide the service. The healthcare outcomes don't just belong to the, correctional health care team, but if any other health care provider is involved in their care, they own those outcomes and those metrics as well. So it's it's there. Thank you for mentioning it.
4: And I just want to add that there are two sides to the coin Mm -hmm. that are important, and the metrics is very important, and the convergence process took it very seriously. The other side is stories, is people, and you need both because ultimately... I can come and I, and I do this sometimes, Spew statistics and numbers and so on, but you start, they start to sort of get hazy, and it's just numbers. Ultimately, what sticks with you is people, and I think you need both, and I think you need evidence of success, and I like the way you frame the question that we need to have positive indicators, not just negative ones, mm-hmm. but we also need stories and people, and that's ultimately what it's about. Right. Which is creating, uh, helping support people to reach their potential inside and out. And when you're involved in that process, it's the most beautiful, fulfilling work you could ever do.
3: One of the things that Mr. Rogers said at a speech I heard him give before he passed away was that philanthropy begins with a lump in the throat. So unless you have that lump in the throat, that visceral connection and reaction um, to what is happening to another human being, then you're less likely to act, you know, in support of them or on their behalf. So the, the stories that you're talking about, Mark, give that lump in the throat, you know, followed up with a firm request on how a system should respond um, to the needs that gave you that original lump in the throat.
5: That is the perfect segue for the <laughs> comment that I wanted to make. So my name is Rod Key and I'm actually the program manager for um, four transitional age youth re-entry programs here in San Francisco and in Alameda County. We work with young women ages 18 to 25 coming out of the jails in San Francisco and Oakland. Um, that lump in the throat.
3: Mm-hmm.
5: I get it. I'm getting it now. Mm-hmm. Um, when I think about All of the other challenges, and specifically housing. I mean, that's the biggest thing that we deal with. And we would be remiss not to mention this, and I just felt it was important to say. Mm -hmm. um, You know, this unsustainable gentrification is happening, you know, directly related to systemic racism. Um, I wondered if you addressed that in your report.
3: Yes, we do. And um, it is again back to incentivizing uh, homeowners, renters, um, property management companies, there are f- sadly, though, too few examples of where um, the housing needs have been met. And when we think about, you know, a primary, what is it, Maslow's hierarchy of needs, you know, a basic need is a place to live. Um, there are a few organizations like in New York City, for example, where the nonprofit owns the housing um, unit um, and they rent to and make housing available to formerly incarcerated individuals. There there are more than a few of uh, faith-based organizations of, of the like a Glide Church, for example, that own transitional housing facilities. But transitional is a very uh, key word that I want you to home in on, which is it's not a permanent solution um, to an ongoing housing crisis. And this goes back to um, a point that we made at the very beginning about seeing the, the, the individuals that we are talking about in their humanity. and It is not a Sophie's choice. You know that we are making when it's providing housing for the formerly incarcerated person or the person who's been homeless. You know for however many years, both individuals requ- require um, and and demand uh, our support in terms of providing um, affordable housing. I live in the Washington D.C. area. Washington D.C., the most gentrified um, city in the United States, and there isn't a single transitional housing facility. For some of the people that we are talking about, especially for women um, who are formerly incarcerated, we can do better. Yeah,
1: well, we run out of official time, but I'd like to first thank you very much both for coming. So ends another event of the Commonwealth Club and it's 117th year of enlightened discussion.